This summer, dive into the many cools of San Antonio. Because as soon as the temperature rises, so does the fun, the flavors, the excitement, and the many cool things that make our city the perfect summer getaway destination. Come keep cool with amazing pools at the best hotels, refreshing adventures both indoor and outdoor, inspiring history and culture, culinary wonders, and the hottest nights of your life at the coolest spots in Texas. To plan the coolest summer vacation, dive in to visitsanantonio.com slash summer. Two, four, six, eight. Who do we appreciate? Houseplants. <laughs> yes, it's Jane Perone here with On the Ledge, celebrating houseplants since 2017. In the show today, we find out how you could become the custodian of two important houseplant genera. And I offer up a clutch of top tips about terrariums. Thanks to all of you who said how much you enjoyed the cam and gutation episode of last week with Polly Schiffman. More leaf botany episodes are on their way after my two-week break. Just a reminder that there's no show on July the 24th or the 31st. I'll be back on August the 7th with my 150th episode of On The Ledge. Thank you also to Marcus who got in touch to tell me about how much he appreciated the Hilton Carter and Tyler Thrasher episodes. And Marcus is just starting to study horticulture formally for the first time at the age of 41, but finds that as a black man, he's often the only one in the room. And Marcus said, thank you for validating my choice of career. For the first time in my life, I'm following my passions. Well, I don't think I need to validate your choice of career. I think you've done a pretty darn good job of doing that yourself, Marcus. But thank you for supporting the show and listening while you're driving and while you're at work. Apparently, my voice is relaxing. It's actually given me an idea, this email, Marcus. <laughs> Everyone slightly takes a a, a nervous intake of breath at this point. Well, I'm going to, I've decided that because everyone thinks my voice is so relaxing, I have picked a book from the 1800s about indoor gardening, and I'm going to read some of it in an episode coming up and see whether, as just an exercise in relaxation, how everyone finds it, whether it's something you might want to fall asleep to or de-stress to of an evening. So we'll give that a try after I'm back from my break. Listen out for that because it's going to be fun. Thank you to Joyful Plant Mom in the US for leaving a review for On The Ledge on Apple Podcasts and to Jan for becoming a legend by signing up for Patreon and to Amanda who upped her pledge to become a super fan. And Amanda, your exclusive postcard should be winging its way to you right now. I've also finally worked out how to set up a US version of my merch shop. 
So if you have been holding back on getting an on-the-ledge t-shirt or mouse mat or button badge because it was a bit expensive to ship from Europe, now is your opportunity. If you visit my website, janeperone.com, and click on the shop link in the top right-hand corner, when you go there, you should now be offered the opportunity to head to the US version of the site with prices in US dollars and shipping priced accordingly. So some of you have already taken advantage of this to get yourself a lovely t-shirt or hoodie or even a dog bandana. Basically, there's two versions of the show logo, either the monochrome or the bicolor greens. And there's also the Jane and Wolfie illustration, which you can get on many items too. So do check that out if you're interested in supporting the show via a little bit of a treat for yourself. And if you're not following me on Instagram, head on over there. I'm j.l.perone. And there you can see my regular IGTV videos, Perone's Plants, hashtag Perone's Plants, where I talk about different plants from my collection and waffle on for about five minutes about them. And it's just a way of seeing my smiling face and getting a bit more content from a houseplant person such as myself. If you are a regular listener to the show, you will know that I have visited various national collections of houseplants. For example, the Peperomia collection of Sally Williams and Mercy Morris's spider plant collection, Chlorophytum camosum. But what are these national collections and what do they do? I got a press release this week from the charity Plant Heritage, who runs the National Collection Scheme here in the UK, telling me that they were on the hunt for national collection holders for some missing genera. And among those missing genera were two that we as houseplant lovers know all about, and that's Hoya and Tradescantia. So I thought I would give Plant Heritage a call and find out a little bit more about what being a national collection holder involves. So my name is Vicky Cook and I'm the uh, conservation manager here at Plant Heritage. I have an audience of global proportions. So lots of people perhaps aren't fully aware of what plant heritage here in the UK is or what you do. Can you just give us a little potted history of plant heritage? So plant heritage was founded in the 1970s and its aims then were to ensure that the incredible diversity of cultivated plants that we have in this country remain available for generations to come. You know, so we've got a really strong history in the UK of um, of plants and gardens. You know, from from the plant hunters and all the plant breeders, the grand estates, and just the enthusiastic British public. Uh, we're a nation of gardeners, and so we've got this hugely diverse garden flora. But there's no, you know, a mechanism otherwise that was realised in the 70s to stop us losing any of the, you know, any good plants. And one of the delightful things about these national collections that you mention is that it means there's people all over the country who are really passionate about a particular species or genus who have are taking care of these plants and recording their collections and making sure that they stay around forever, which is fantastic. But you don't have all of the different genera that we grow in our houses and gardens covered. And this is where we've got this got this press release the other day from you about your missing genera. And I was very excited slash worried to see that two of them are a genera that are very much favourites of mine. Can you tell me about 
what you're doing to try to sort out these missing genera and and the the Tradescantia and Hoya genera uh, genus in particular. So although we've got 650 plant collections all around the country, that in no way covers all of the different plant groups that we grow in the UK. Uh, and the role of the national collections are to to collect more or less all that you can of that particular genus or plant group, document it, develop it, conserve it for the future, and also research it and become, you know, an authority on that plant group. So every year we, we try and identify maybe the top 10 most interesting plant groups that we would like to see somebody step forward for um, and become a national collection holder for. And yeah, as you say, two of them happen to be Hoya and Tradiscantia this Fantastic. year. Fantastic. Uh, I cannot believe that no one has the Hoya national collection. And I'm slightly disturbed by this fact because the temptation to apply is great, but I don't think I've got the skills. What's involved in having a national collection or applying for one? So, well, the first thing really is to have a passion for your plant group. I think that probably goes without question. But then the first thing to do would be to, to get in touch, really, and we can give you some advice and guidance on how to get started. It might be that you don't have very many plants to start with, and we can give you some guidance on how to focus the scope of a collection. So some plant groups are huge, and you might not want to or have space for all of them, but we can give you some advice by maybe collecting all the cultivars of a particular species within that group or everything that was in- introduced by a certain breeder person and then yeah then the next thing is to start collecting and documenting and making sure that you've got good labeling systems and your records are in order and then yes you can make an application to have a national plant collection it sounds easy but how how many plants are we talking about here i mean how many different hoya species have you identified that might might come under this hoya national collection is it many well it's difficult to say because there's about 18 species and cultivars that are currently in the rhs plant finder which is what we Mm -hmm. use as a general you know ad hoc guide to to what is currently available but i've no doubt there are plenty more available with specialists around the country so it it would be interesting to see for some of these more tropical plant groups what currently is in cultivation in the uk and what you could find out so sometimes people have started thinking oh this looks like a nice small plant group i'll collect that but the more you start digging the more you realize how much is out there the record keeping part of it strikes fear into my heart. What kind of records are you expected to keep? And, and are you expected to keep more than one specimen of each of each type of plant? Yes. Yeah, so ideally, um, we would li- like to see uh, three um, specimens of each plant, which gives you a bit of a backup should should you lose one or two even. Um, and the records we are asking you to keep at the very base level, it's... Um, you know, what is the name of this plant? Uh, where did you get it from? How long have you had it? Uh, those kind of things. But then also with that, you can start collecting information such as cultural habits. You know, what do I need to grow this plant or how easy is it to propagate? Or, you know, does it, is it actually the right name that it was sold to me as? Because quite often, you know, there's a lot of question marks over some of the names of plants that come through the trade. So you, you end up by building up this sort of collection, you build up the knowledge about the plants as well, which is just as important as the actual plants themselves. Are you, are you expected to have a sort of a stream of visitors coming through, obviously not COVID notwithstanding, are visitors coming through to look to examine your national collection? Yeah, so we have um, we've got a local coordinators in each area, and they will sort of are our boots on the ground who might help you set up the collection, and they'll visit your site and check everything's um, growing well. But also, one of the requirements of a national collection is that you are open to the public. 
And that is interpreted in many different ways. Of course, some are in public gardens and that's nice and easy, but others have national collections in their homes and they might have a maybe an open day once a year or um, or an appointment system in more normal years, of course. Are there any other things that national collection holders need to know in terms of do you need insurance or do you have to pay or is there any other other little things that we need to be aware of? Uh, you have to be a member of Plant Heritage. Um, so an individual membership is about £36. And uh, you get insurance through us for um, for opening your house or for any open days to do with Plant Heritage National Collections. So that's all arranged. Okay. Well, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think well. <laughs> <laughs> well this sounds like a, a great project for a listener. Do you find that you get lots of feedback from National Collection holders that they start and they think, oh, this is going to be really simple. I've got like 20 plants to collect. And then the deeper they go, the more they end up with uh, a giant collection as a result of of getting into their particular genus. Absolutely. You can tell that it just grabs people and the obsession starts and that's it. You know, you're off and you're, you're suddenly your house is completely taken over with uh, hundreds of, of plants of your choice. But uh well, that's part of the joy of the collection. Um, and if you find it's getting too unwieldy, then there's always ways that you can um, sort of rescope the collection to maybe sort of just take a certain species of it and all the cultivars of that. So, yeah, there's always a chance to keep it manageable. Well, I want to know if you have a national collection holder for Saxifragia stolonifera and its cultivars, because that's the one I think I could handle. I reckon I could oh. do that. Um Right. You can check that out I for me. I don't think we do. No, okay. Right, I'm going to hold you to that then, Jane. Yeah, no, I, I, I was thinking about Hoya, but then I just I just ran through my head the numbers of different Hoya species and cultivars that I, I'm aware of. And I just thought, gosh, having yeah. three of each of those, I don't think I could do it. But I, I think maybe, just maybe, particularly because Saxifragia stolonifera can live inside or out, maybe I could pull off the national collection of uh of of species and cult species and the cultivars of that i'm 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 considering it anyway you've 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 encouraged me further in my obsession with that particular species <laughs> well it's lovely well to we ha have it on record <laughs> <laughs> well it's lovely to have your expertise vicky and um yeah i'm really hoping that as a result of this uh, some a couple of listeners will come forward and uh the tradescantia and hoya genera will be covered as a result because it'll be lovely to have uh have an on the ledge listener doing that work for you so fingers crossed what's the best place to go and find out more information about plant heritage if you visit our website www.plantheritage.org.uk that's got details of how you can start a national collection a bit more about the missing genera um, and how you can get in touch with us brilliant thanks so much vicky no problem thank you <laughs> Now let's hear from On The Ledge's other supporter this week, the Fiddle Leaf Fig Plant Resource Centre. If you want to help your Fiddle Leaf Fig live its best life, check out the Fiddle Leaf Fig Plant Resource Centre's products, which are specially tailored to meet the needs of your plant, including root rot treatment, fertiliser and rooting hormones. Visit fiddleleaffigplant.com for tons of resources, tricks and tips to help your fig recover from leaf drop, put on new growth and really start to thrive. Check out their free 30-minute care webinar that demystifies looking after these iconic plants from watering to repotting. Still got questions? The Fiddle Leaf Fig Plant Resource Centre can help. Join their Facebook group of more than 20,000 fig lovers ready and waiting to share advice. 
Find out more at fiddlelyfigplant.com now. That's fiddlelyfigplant.com. If you think you might be the perfect person to nurture a national collection, then do check out the show notes at janeperone.com for information and links about plant heritage and their national collections. And now it's time for question of the week. And this one came from, well, I think this is the youngest listener I've ever heard from. Meg is aged 11. Thank you for getting in touch, Meg. Meg told me, I'm very inexperienced, I'm only 11, and I only got my first houseplant three years ago. Recently, I've gotten very interested in terrariums and I've decided to try and make one. I've done lots of research about moisture, watering, plant types and containers. I wanted to ask you your top tips for creating a terrarium. And even though my very first episode was about terrariums back in February 2017, it's not something I've covered that many times in the podcast since. So a high time that I gave some terrarium tips. I will put a link in the show notes to a question I answered a while back about plants for terrariums. And in that episode, I do specifically mention some good small plants for terrariums. And so that is also definitely worth a listen. But there's so much more to terrariums than the plants. Meg, I started my first terrarium. Gosh, I think the first very first one I had was a Fitonia in a round glass sort of goldfish bowl shaped container with a cork lid. Uh, But the biggest one that I had was a fish tank that was a good three or four foot long that my dad got from God knows where. (laughs) And I had that in my room. And because I didn't really know what I was doing, I just used soil from the garden and I ended up with lots of earthworms crawling around the bottom. I wish I had a photo of it somewhere. I I need to ask my mum to have a hunt through the photographs and see. But if I ever dig out a photo of that, I will I will share it with you. But that was how I started, just working very small from, from small containers and then eventually ended up with this very large fish tank full of plants, which did work really well, actually, even though I was doing lots of things wrong. What I'm trying to say here is there are as many different ways of making terrariums as there are terrarium makers, I guess. One of the things, though, that does get my goat quite often when I'm looking at pictures of terrariums online on social media particularly, is there are so many terrariums pictured that are filled with succulents and cacti. And while it's possible to make a successful terrarium for succulents and cacti, particularly if it's an unlidded terrarium, in other words, the air humidity is a bit lower, I think really on the whole, it's not something I would ever recommend. Why? Because succulents and cacti grow in places where the last thing they have is a place where there's nowhere for water to escape. So even if it rains quite a lot in a succulent's native land, the water will just be able to drain away really quickly because the plant's growing in a very free draining setting, whether that's a crack in the earth or very sandy soil or some other way that they are basically never allowed to have wet roots. And it's very, very hard in a terrarium setting to reproduce that because there's always the danger of watering too much. And these plants don't like high air humidity. If you've got maybe a forest cactus, that's something that you could potentially grow in a terrarium. 
And why not experiment? Have a go. But on the whole, you end up with cacti and succulents and terrariums usually never being watered, which means that the they're just too dry and they just sit there and do absolutely nothing or they turn to mush because there's just too much moisture about. So choice of plants is crucial. Do go back and listen to the episode where I talk about specific small plants for terrariums because the other mistake people make is taking plants that are going to get quite large and planting them up in a terrarium and thinking they can leave them there for several years. Now, yes, you can put a baby parlor palm and a peperomia raindrop and a Boston fern, a baby Boston fern in a small jar, and they might be all right for a few months. But within a few months, they will just absolutely be bursting out of that space and very, very unhappy. So you're kind of making work for yourself, really. There are loads of much smaller plants now that do really well in terrariums. And, you know, if you listen to my James Wong episode, he talks about this as well, that really look out for these small plants that will do so much better in a terrarium setting. But getting back to basics, what about the actual container itself? Well, the world is your oyster in many respects. Anything that's clear, glass or plastic, makes a good container. Back in the 70s when carboys were popular, those giant globular glass containers, I don't know what they used to hold, storage vessels of some kind, used to be used for houseplants. They were often kind of a pale green colour, but Really, you want clear glass for terrariums. It doesn't block as much light as any coloured glass would. So it really is the best choice. And try to find glass that's not too wavy or distorted, because again, it'll stop you from seeing the plants properly and it'll also stop more light from reaching them. You could use a jam jar, a large jar that's had pickles in it, a sweet jar, Lots of times when you see pictures of terrariums in books, they have quite small openings. You really are making your life quite difficult by choosing a container with a really small opening because it just makes planting it up and maintaining your terrarium really quite difficult. So certainly when you start out, try to find a wide mouthed container. So yeah, the world is your oyster. If you've got a, an old fashioned goldfish bowl shaped glass item. There's, I mean, there's just so many things. Look around your kitchen, check out junk shops, thrift stores, charity shops, and you should be able to find something that works. When it comes to the ingredients to go into your terrarium, the substrate, that just means the stuff at the bottom of the tank that the plants grow in. There are so many different choices in this respect. What I would say is you need some kind of drainage layer at the bottom. And when I say drainage, obviously the water's not going anywhere. It's just going to sit there. But you want something to make sure that the plant's roots are not sitting directly in water. Often people use a layer of pebbles or expanded clay pebbles or grit. Any of these things can work really well. Um, try to make it something that's vaguely decorative, because bear in mind that it's going to be visible from outside the pot. So some nice coloured pebbles or aquarium gravel in a funky colour can look great. The other thing that people sometimes do is separate off that layer from the soil layer above. And you can do this with some kind of micro mesh. You can buy various plastic meshes that you can cut to fit the base of your terrarium and then just slot that on the top of your drainage layer so that the soil doesn't get mixed in with the drainage. 
in extremis, you could use something really, really simple, like an old pair of black tights um, would be absolutely fine. It doesn't have to be anything particularly fancy. It just needs to be something that the water can pass through and something that's hopefully not going to draw a lot of attention to itself. It's just going to sit there quietly and do its job of keeping the soil where it needs to be and letting moisture through. One of the other things that people often add is charcoal. And the kind of charcoal that you're looking for is what's called activated charcoal. And if you have an aquarium shop near you, this is where to go to get activated charcoal. It comes in little pellets. And what this stuff does, it's incredibly porous and it can take impurities out of the soil. You can either mix it in with the soil or you could have it as a layer above the drainage layer, the grit or the pebbles or whatever, but below the divider, the net divider, either will work. I've seen lots of successful aquariums work without using activated charcoal. So it's not essential, but it's one of those things that people like to add. So if you can get hold of some, it's certainly not going to do your terrarium any harm to include it. And the soil itself, well, you can use general houseplant compost that's suitable for the plants that you're including I would always add a little bit of extra drainage material in the form of something like perlite or grit just to make sure that there's it's not doesn't get too claggy in there. There are many, many different formulas for terrarium soil. Again, try things out. There is absolutely no harm in experimenting with what works for you. One thing that's worth saying about perlite, I've mentioned, I think in the show recently, that I've been trying out a more sustainable alternative to perlite, which is made of rice husks with varying success. I would say that it doesn't last as long as perlite, which is basically going to last forever. The rice husks do start to break down after a few months. So I'm not sure I'd recommend them as a viable alternative to perlite. One thing you can use though, particularly if you're struggling to get hold of perlite, you can, and I wouldn't like to say that this was hugely more sustainable than perlite, but if you can get hold of chicken grit or bird grit from your pet shop, local pet shop, this is usually a great alternative to perlite and absolutely fine to use in potting mixes where you want to improve the drainage. Just don't do what I did and use soil from the garden because this tends not to work tremendously well. (laughs) Depending on what kind of soil you've got, you may find it's heavy clay or too sandy. Lots of things can go wrong there. Also, you might bring in with you things like slug and snail eggs, which obviously you do not want in your terrarium because they will hatch out and munch away at everything. Some people recommend sterilising the soil that you're putting into the terrarium by zapping it in the microwave. You make sure it's moist if you're going to do this because the microwave works on moisture. So yeah, if you don't make it moist, then explosions may occur. I don't bother doing this. I There's lots of life in soil that you don't want to get rid of. So providing that you're using good quality houseplant compost, I don't think you're going to have a problem. If you do end up with any creatures in your terrarium, they're probably going to be springtails and and these actually are a great clean cleanup crew for a terrarium. Some people deliberately put these in because they will clear up any organic matter that comes off plants and so on and stop things going mouldy. So yeah, you can even add this stuff as an extra, but springtails aren't usually a problem. If you don't know what springtails look like, oftentimes if you lift up a, a plant pot out of its pot and look at the bottom of a cash pot, you'll find there's these tiny little 
insects the size of, uh, you know, the size of a dot, which might be sort of moving around. They are very often springtails. And as I say, they don't do any harm to your plants and they can actually be helpful. So yay for springtails. One other thing worth saying, you can have a terrarium which has got the plants still in its pots. So if you're big into carnivorous plants, for example, you could have an old fish tank and have your carnivorous plants sitting in their pots in a tray of water. Because as we know, carnivorous plants on the whole like to be sat in water in a boggy place. But you could you could just have the terrarium or fish tank around them, just increasing humidity, but not actually have them planted into the substrate, but have them in individual pots. And you could do the same with any plant, actually. Um, if you've got a big enough glass container of some kind, you don't need to plant it up. You can just have plants in pots. And that sometimes actually makes it easier to maintain. You will obviously need to water possibly a little bit more often and keep an eye on your plants. But hopefully if it is a big container that's got good accessibility, that shouldn't be too much of a problem. And then we're talking about once you've got your plants in, what you can add to the top or what you can add in addition. Moss is a, a really popular thing and sometimes you can... You know, I mean, legendarily, James Wong got his moss for one of his terrariums off a garage roof. So perhaps out in your garden or in the locale you that you are in, unless it's it's very wild and precious, please don't take moss from woodlands and things. But if you're in an urban environment and you see some nice moss, you can, of course, take that. Again, just beware of bringing in any eggs or beasties on there that you don't want in your terrarium. You can also get a little bit quirky here. I mean, there's a whole world of terrarium accessories out there. In our family, we quite like using Lego minifigures in little scenes uh, for terraria. It's quite fun. So yeah, you don't have to go out and buy a lot of expensive stuff, but see what you've got around the house. What could you repurpose? It might be some little ornaments, anything you like. The world is your oyster. Go wild, add lots of interesting things to your terrarium scene and make it fun, which is what it's all about. Make sure the substrate's damp before you put it in there. Give everything a bit of a mist. You may find you need to take the lid off for a little bit and let a bit of excess moisture escape if you're finding that there's lots and lots of condensation on the sides and this will vary you know your it may you may find that from time to time the lid needs to come off or go back on again you may need to mist and eventually after a year or more your terrarium may need replanting depending on how quick the plants have been to grow so it's not entirely no maintenance but it's certainly low maintenance so I hope that helps, Meg, and you've got lots of great tips for your next terrarium project. And I'd love to see your terrarium pictures, everybody. I know that some of you are really amazing at making cool terrariums. So do send me your pictures and share them on the Facebook group, Houseplant Fans of On The Ledge. And if you've got a question, drop me a line on the ledge podcast at gmail.com. And do remember to include some pictures, info about where you are, how long you've had your plant and so on, because that gives me the best chance of giving you an accurate answer. Thanks for joining me this week. I will be back with another episode three weeks hence. So keep going and keep growing. Bye. The music you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by the Joy Drops 
and After the Flames by Josh Woodward. The advertising music was by the Heftone Banjo Orchestra with the tracks Dill Pickles and Whistling Rufus. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit janeperone.com for details. (laughs) 